0: All I had to say was hello. And it took me multiple occasions like this to put myself out of my comfort zone until 10, 12 years later, I don't even mind if I'm making mistakes and using the wrong grammar because I know it's all part of the learning process. And by making mistakes, native speakers are there to help me.
1: Hello and welcome back to series two of Rosetta Stone's More Than Words podcast, in which I've been talking to fascinating people and experts in the field of language and linguistics to answer your most pressing questions about learning another language. My name is Alex Rawlings, I was named Britain's most multilingual student in 2012, and I'll be your guide for this series, providing some tips I've picked up on my way to fluency in 12 different languages. In this first episode, we are asking the question, what is the best way to learn a language, particularly as adults with busy lives? And helping me to answer this question, I was joined by three guests that have been doing it for many years. Thomas Back is a reader in human cognitive neuroscience at the University of Edinburgh. Lindy Buertas is a polyglot who shares her language learning tips with over 250,000 subscribers on her YouTube channel. And Tali Menchian is a German language tutor for Rosetta Stone. We tuned in for this episode from three different continents, and with over 25 different languages between us, hopefully you'll pick up plenty of knowledge and advice to apply to your own language learning journey, which I've summarized for you at the end. Enjoy! First of all, perhaps we could maybe start with you, Thomas. What exactly does a cognitive neuroscientist do, and what does that have to do with language?
2: Neuroscience is a discipline which basically brings people from very, very different disciplinary backgrounds. So my own background is in fact medicine. And I studied medicine and then specialized in psychiatry and neurology. But as I was for yeah, always interested in languages, I probably will come up with later on why, uh, I sort of kind of combining my medical studies with magnetized uh, languages. And so I did my PhD on my doctorate in Freiburg and in Germany, where I was there at that time, on aphasia, which are language disorders and brain diseases. And since then, I would say my main interest has been always in the kind of interface between brain mind and language. So first I worked with stroke patients, then my time in Cambridge, I was working a lot with patients with dementia, with movement disorders, and over the last 10 years or so in Edinburgh, I work more and more about the question of uh, bilingualism, multilingualism, and um, its influence on the brain, how it can influence uh, aging, cognitive aging, dementia, and so on.
1: So that's quite interesting, Thomas, because I think a lot of people, um... When we think about the brain and we think about language i think we think about two things we think about how maybe learning a language could allow us to improve kind of our cognitive functions and improve the workings of our brain but maybe people also think about the fact that their brain might stop them from learning languages maybe they don't have the right chip as it were to kind of learn the languages that they want to what do you think about that
2: i'm glad that you mentioned that because i think one of the kind of crucial changes that, you know, I have experienced basically since my doctorate and now uh, was that about 40 years ago, we were thinking of the brain a little bit like a chest of drawers. So there were different functions in different parts of the brain. And it was not a model that was terribly good in accommodating multilingualism. because then the question was, I mean, you know, where is it? And if you have two languages, are they the same place and kind of pushing each other away or are they taking space, you know, for math and whatever. Now, over the last 40 years, our understanding of brain changed dramatically. So we see brain now much more as a network, or in fact, a combination of different networks. And in a net, adding one more thread makes the the thing stronger and not weaker. So from this point of view, I would say this kind of modern models of the brain which stress the interaction, the network character, adaptability, neuroplasticity, are much more open to accommodating. We moved from this idea of kind of competition of languages for scarce place in the brain, to something quite opposite, in which adding more languages makes, in fact, the system stronger and more stable.
1: So I suppose, Tali, maybe we could ask you, I mean, as as a German language tutor for Rosetta Stone, you must have worked with a number of different language learners. What's been your experience with this? Do you think that anybody can learn a language or is there, have you noticed any specific characteristics or attributes about your more successful students?
3: Yeah, so definitely I think that anybody can really learn a language. I think it's like anything else in life that if you're consistent and you show up, you can do it. Um, I do think that um, some people might have it a little bit easier just looking at my experiences. I don't know if that's uh, right from a neuroscientific point of view, but from my experiences, people that are very consistent, you know, those are the people that make the biggest progress, obviously. And I also think or I think I noticed that people that are bilingual already, they tend to show a little bit more progress or success a little earlier. Um, in my head, it makes sense because I'm thinking they know how to learn a language already. Because this is, if you never learn a language, it's a new concept and you have to learn, how do you practice it? And how do you learn? What's the best way for you to really learn a language? I guess everybody's is very different. Um, if you already learn a language, you already kind of know what works for you, you know, the techniques, and I think that probably helps the people to learn a little bit faster. At least that's the experience that I had.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that, Tally, because I mean, um, I grew up with two languages at home, although I don't think I really was bilingual until kind of a bit later in my childhood. I mean, there were some kids at school who were super bilingual who from day one could speak both languages. But for me, it took me a bit longer to learn my second language, which was Greek. Um, but one of the things I noticed in the kids around me who were extremely bilingual is that they were far less interested in learning the languages at school. And my theory at the time was that, well, maybe they're just used to having a second language for free and they're not used to actually putting in the work, which is actually where I wanted to bring Lindy into the conversation, because Lindy, I know that you also grew up bilingually uh, with English and Afrikaans. Yet um, you've also spent a lot of time as an adult learning a language. I mean, do you th- maybe you could draw a little bit on that experience to tell us about. You know what are the differences between speaking languages bilingually but also actually having to learn them as an adult
0: yeah that's really interesting i think i might relate a bit to your experience growing up as well and how i viewed languages at school versus how i view them now so even though i did grow up um bilingually i i i think i learned afrikaans first and then when we moved overseas to pakistan is the first time i actually started learning um english I think I learned French before I learned English, but that is just way back in my childhood. Um, And I cannot even remember that far back. But I remember at school, I saw language classes as just, okay. this is a class at school. I need to get good grades. And then it's done. I actually didn't take it seriously. Um, And I never really saw the value of languages until much later when I brought um, friendships and culture and music into that. So languages have always just been like very standard for me, like, okay, we speak one or two languages at home and I take a few lessons at school. And it really took a, a mindset shift for me to appreciate and value and actually start learning languages out of my own.
1: And what what do you think triggered that mindset shift for you? What was it that made you start to see languages as something more applicable?
0: I think it's definitely trying to make it fun for myself. At school, it was like um, you get a list of vocabulary words and you get a test and you might read a page from a book and you repeat that uh, ad nauseum for the year and then you're done. Nothing about that was building bridges with other cultures, talking to people, using the language, speaking it. It was this very isolated thing that you box in an hour or a few hours a week, and that's it. It didn't integrate into my life. So once I um, traveled to Korea for the first time, I realized that wow I'm, I'm really enjoying uh, making friendships with these people i love the music i love the food and that kind of became a motivator for me to learn this language because i wanted to understand how do these people think how can i better communicate with them and from that it kind of snowballed into oh well korean is quite similar to japanese uh and they both stem from mandarin chinese and one thing led to another and it really started with um wanting to build friendships and engage with a culture outside of a purely academic school um, environment.
1: I'm thinking also about brain development, because I would have imagined actually that when it comes to studying a language, a child who hasn't finished education, who hasn't developed kind of self-discipline uh, when it comes to keeping a routine around learning languages, who, you know, maybe just, for example, as we've been saying, doesn't have the motivation to actually do it in the first place, might actually be at a disadvantage when it comes to learning a language compared to an adult who has the experience perhaps of studying, of completing school, maybe of higher education, um, and also the self-discipline to actually be able to do it. So I wonder on a face-to-face value, maybe in some ways it is easier for adults.
2: You are absolutely right that with age, we, of course, I think the way how we age or how we should learn making age into an advantage rather than a disadvantage is to use all the knowledge that we have to support new knowledge and one of the things for instance is particularly if you learn other languages across your life that you then integrate this knowledge into learning new languages so when I learn a completely new language I will always think oh well this works like in English but this works like in Spanish this works like in German this works in Polish and so on and so on and this is a very natural process. I want to stress because there's this idea that, you know, learning languages, adults came as a kind of late thing. If you look at hunter-gatherer societies, many of them have the rule of linguistic exogamy. So that means basically that you can only marry someone speaking a different language. And that means all kids grow up with parents speaking two different languages. But that also means if you want to marry, you have to learn another language. And then uh, it's so practically the idea is that we learn all the time and older people are sometimes particularly valued because the idea is they picked up many languages during their lifetime so then can, for instance, they will know magical formulas and so on in many languages, so I think it is absolutely natural to learn languages across our lifespan. And we learn differently because the older we get and the more knowledge of other things we have, the more we can and should integrate it into language learning.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've noticed in myself though, I have to say is that, I see my language learning progress slow down as I get older and as I get more into adult life. I think when I was, I mean, I'd say it wasn't necessarily that I was learning languages very fast as a child. I think it took more to the age of about 13, 14 to me for me really to pick up the speed where I was uh, making a lot of progress. And that's when I started teaching myself a lot of languages like Dutch, Afrikaans. Uh, Russian, all sorts of things like that, really started as this kind of obscure hobby, if you like, when I was around that age. Um, And that momentum, I think, took me through to about my early 20s. And then suddenly everything started to slow down for me. And I don't think it's necessarily to do with the brain. I don't think it's necessarily to do with losing the touch, but I think it's more just suddenly you have to start paying rent and council tax and all sorts of stuff like that, which means that you have less time to spend on your passion, which is learning languages. And you have to spend more time doing very boring adult things. And Lindy, I see you nodding. I was actually going to ask if that had been your experiences. I know you have also studied a lot of languages, but you also have a full-time job and a full life to lead. How has being an adult affected your language learning?
0: Oh man, yeah. I I don't know how I passed my... um exams in high school with seven distinctions because I spent majority of my time studying Korean and not even studying for my high school exams. So I think I was a different person back then. I don't know how I did it, how I could just have the motivation really to learn languages so much. Right now, I mean, I am <laughs> I am tired. I think that's a very real thing that we get. We have so many responsibilities. So I think definitely I I realize that I don't have that, that um, passion. I, I still have the passion, but I don't have the innate motivation yet. So then I need to turn motivation into discipline and where in the past I would rely a lot on my feelings like, oh, you know what, today I'm going to study and I feel like I'm going to go to language exchange, I'm going to do all these exciting things. Right now, I actually need to schedule that in and say, all right, well, this week uh, I have four free hours in the evenings or this weekend I'm going to book off Saturday so I can go to a cafe and study my grammar book or Sunday evening I will have a language exchange phone call with my friend. I'm finding myself needing to schedule a lot more and rely more on discipline and planning rather than um innate motivation and something that i can find an interesting connection with the type of work i do um in in, in startups and, and design agency agencies we work in an agile sprint framework so that is two weeks is one sprint where we quickly release a feature and then after that the agile comes from Okay, let's review what we've done, see how it worked and then apply that to the next thing. So it's constant iteration. It's this Kaizen mindset. So I can do that in my language learning too. And I have a journal where I map out what I do in a week. And at the end of the week, I review and say, okay, was that, did I schedule too much time and not even do anything? Is this resource working for me? How much speaking practice did I actually get in? Because I acknowledge, you know, just sitting and reading a book is really not going to do much if I'm not using the language. But the point I'm trying to make is at the end of each week, I actually go back and review and um, continuously iterate on my process. So I'm focusing a lot more on the processes and the time I spend on languages rather than just willy-nilly studying whenever I feel like it. Because frankly, I don't feel like it every day.
1: And how do you know if you've been using your time well? I mean, because I think one of the problems with language learning is that sometimes it can feel hard to know if we're doing too much, too little, if we're making progress, if we exercise well enough we should feel a bit sore the next day and if we've exercised too much we still hurt next week you know and if we if we don't feel anything we haven't exercised at all what's the equivalent in 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 language learning to know that you've done enough or you could have done some more and that you're you're making the progress you want to make
0: At the top of my head, I can think of two things. So the first one is just really tracking what you do. This is not necessary. Some people are more visual and they want to see. I know people who go very detailed and they have apps on their phone where they log their time and they can say, this week I spent 40 minutes on listening, two hours on speaking. You can do that. For me, I generally just write down even just a monthly calendar view. I'll just mark, "Okay, speaking practice this day, uh, listening practice this day. But language learning is not necessarily always easy to separate into all of these um, different skills. Sometimes you you mix them all, like I wouldn't split grammar and vocabulary per se, I would just say writing or reading. Uh, So you can track and see how much time you've been spending and you can also keep a journal, a video log or a physical journal and go back over time and see how much have I improved. And you can also go by feeling like in January, it was really hard for me to write more than two sentences in Tagalog and now I can write two paragraphs then if I go back and look, I can say, hey, I've actually been improving. So tracking your progress, whether that be your actual studying progress or your um, ability to produce the language and looking back on that is one way to feel like you've been exercising. And the other way is just really you have to look at it way more long term. We're so focused on short term results. So you need to go back and think how how what was my language skills like last year or two years ago? And think, hey, I've actually improved in the last six months or two years instead of thinking, oh, have I improved in two weeks? Because it's not that easy when you're zooming in microscopically.
1: Why don't we just take a moment now to let our More Than Words listeners know that to help apply the tips you're learning with us, Rosetta Stone has the special offer for all podcast listeners, which will arm you with everything you need to start learning on the go. Simply go to rosettastone.co.uk forward slash podcast where you'll receive a special offer on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription, which will give you access to language learning for life. The link is in the episode description, so just click through from there to start your own language learning journey today. One of the things that I like about Rosetta Stone is that they offer customised plans to help you achieve your specific learning goals. You can create your own plan based on your existing level and your motivation for learning a new language. It's basically like having a virtual language coach to help you make sure that you succeed. Tally, I can imagine one of the reasons why some of us would want to learn a language with another adult is because that adult, I guess, like a personal trainer can help us keep up our motivation and, and track our progress. How do you help your students with those problems?
3: Yeah, definitely. So I remember when I use when I learned English, I was in fifth grade and we learned stuff like Um, My parents are getting a divorce or, you know, things that a fifth grader doesn't really need. Um, So what I like to do in classes, I start with things that people need right away. Why are you learning the language? Is it for work? Is it because you fell in love with somebody? Is it because you moved into another country? And then we go from there. Do you need it because you need to go to the supermarket? Do you need it to talk to people at work? So it's a different approach. And when you find a way you know to engage people and they learn something that they can use you know then suddenly it becomes more fun you know because you don't start with the boring stuff yeah eventually you're going to have to you have to get some of the boring things you know to get to the good and fun stuff but if you combine it and kind of take like you know take something fun and combine it with the boring like kind of hide it a little bit i think then you stay motivated you know you stay on you stay on course Um, And I think that really works. So I usually always ask my student first, why are you learning the language? And then we take it from there.
1: And Thomas, what advice would you give to adults who are thinking about learning a new language? What sort of things do you think they should be thinking about?
3: I would say the
2: journey becomes the pleasure and not only the destination. So you start seeing pleasure in learning itself. And I sometimes say, you know, it's a little bit like, you say, like like traveling. You know, the fastest way of getting to a place is not always the most beautiful one. You know, you can fly somewhere, but you can also go by land or by ferry and have a wonderful uh, meeting. I remember I was once went to a meeting, you know, from Edinburgh to Belfast, and then most people were just flying and they were very stressed and they were delays in the airport. And I went by bus to air where I've seen the play, birthplace of Robert Burns and then took the ferry. From Scotland to uh, to Belfast, so by the time I arrived in the evening, I had a feeling of having had a quick holiday. It was like mini holiday, so I came happy and relaxed, and all the people who were kind of running for quick efficiency came up very stressed. So from this point of view, I would say uh, language learning can be like such a journey in which, in fact, you enjoy all the things that you are exposed to uh, in between and. In this way you learn as well, because very often we learn not necessarily because we want to learn, but because so to say it's almost like a byproduct. Just to give last example, so for instance, I love history and if I go to a new country, I like to read about this history. It is an enormous pleasure to be able to read the history in the language of this country, so I remember when I went first to Brazil, and then I had Historia do Brasil. in in Portuguese, when the moment for me, when I started understanding the historical connections, reading about them in Portuguese, was the moment where I had a feeling, whoa, I got something. At that time, I was still not able to hold a conversation, but I could understand. So I think there are a lot of different things which can be seen as success and which can give us a lot of pleasure.
1: Lindy, what do you think have been some of the biggest barriers for you, the biggest challenges when it comes to learning a language?
0: For me, being able to practise a language and getting yourself to the point where you feel comfortable speaking after the beginner level is always a challenge. And interestingly enough, I feel that it's either one of two things. Either you are so nervous that you're going to make mistakes and you're too scared to speak and you never practise speaking until you feel comfortable and you know enough words or you are so confident in yourself as a beginner because the less we know, the the more comfortable we are actually because we know we're going to make mistakes. So I, I think I might fall into that category where I feel, okay, you know what, I'm here to learn. It's okay if I make mistakes. Uh, let me just mess up. A native speaker won't mind. But it takes, it took me about 10 years to get to the point where i feel comfortable to speak and know that i'll make mistakes before that i remember the very first time i had to say 안녕하세요 hello to a korean shop owner just walking in and greeting them i was quivering outside the store i was like i can't do this i can't and all i had to say was hello and it took me multiple occasions like this to put myself out of my comfort zone until 10, 12 years later, I don't even mind if I'm making mistakes and using the wrong grammar because I know it's all part of the learning process and by making mistakes, native speakers are there to help me, but that was a big mountain for me to overcome, also because I am shy and I am an introvert so it was not easy.
1: Thank you, Lindy. Tally, um, what kinds of challenges have you seen in yourself and also the people you've been working with about learning a language?
3: So I definitely think that finding time to practice, if you want to stay consistent, it's really hard sometimes to find the time to practice. Nowadays, everybody's so busy working. And if you have kids, you know, and then to find extra time for me, it's doing the laundry, cooking, you know, taking care of the kids, doing homework, going to baseball, going to tennis. When do I find the time to schedule in, you know, a little bit of time for me to do what I want to do and learning a language? Is something where you have to be 100% consistent. Um, in my opinion, you really want to, even if it's just five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, but that will really put you to the next, that will really elevate you to the next level. You have to find the time to do it. And I think to a lot of people that is very challenging. Hmm.
1: Thomas, I know you've once uh, described language learning to me as like a full body workout for the brain. What exactly is happening when we learn a foreign language and why is it so important to keep persisting even if we find it difficult?
2: Well, a lot of things. So I think one of the uh, questions I often get asked is that, you know, oh, well, if I want to train my brain, why don't I do just Sudoku or, you know, crosswords? Uh, I think what is unique about languages is, well, not unique because music maybe comes quite close to it, is the enormous number of different things that it requires. So languages are about sounds. So, for instance, when you ask me what my biggest problem is, I say very clearly the tones in, you know, Uh, Mandarin and even more in Cantonese or other versions of Chinese. That's what I find most difficult. Or in fact in Damara when I was in Namibia, I was trying to learn some words in in the local Khoisan language. So, uh, so one thing are, so it's perception, it's production, it's also visual processing if its written language. But then we have also the level of the lexicon where you have a lot of different concepts. Anybody who knows more than one language knows that many words do not translate one to one. They have different flavor in different languages. They roughly correspond, but they are not quite the same. And that is something which makes you very aware of a lot of nice fine semantic distinctions in the world. So your word becomes richer. Then comes the whole world of grammar. And that is, uh, for instance, you know, learning the rules. That could be hard, but it also you know could have the kind of the fascination of you know almost algorithm or some kind of computer program and then last thing is the pragmatics languages are very different in how they Use the things in context. So, for instance, I was interested. You know, Korean has been mentioned. Korean, Japanese are notorious for having very different registers. So it's not just. So even if you say, you know, it's nice weather today, you might say differently whether you are the boss saying it to your so to say, you know, a employee, or vice versa, or whether two people speak at the same level and the same in Korean. So from this point of view, I think this incredible. Uh, language is at the same time very, very kind of mathematical and incredibly emotional. So this whole breadth of things, there is hardly anything that sort of say our brain is not involved in, that is not in some way tapped in by languages.
1: Speaking of Thomas about, you know, picking up on sounds, learning vocabulary, grammar, and all of these different things. It's very interesting to hear you talk about that, because one of the focuses we're going to have in this series of of, uh, More Than Words is going to be on those specific different uh, topics. For example, learning vocabulary, learning to speak with a better accent, um, and so on and so forth. I suppose my next question, though, for everyone (laughs) really is... Once we've got to that point where we're very sure that we want to learn another language, we've made the time, we have found the resources and we've made the commitment to ourselves. I suppose the next question is, what do you start doing next? What's the very first thing that you need to start tackling on your journey towards learning a language, Tali? Um,
3: I love to start with vocabulary. I know it sounds a little, maybe you should start with grammar, but I think that the more vocabulary you learn um, the more motivated, you say, because you can use it. You know, you can see how you can um, build sentences, even if they're not grammatically really correct 100%, but you can start applying it, you know, and if you speak with a native speaker, they will, you know, they will correct you, but at least you can try to keep up a little conversation at the beginning. So I would would focus um, at the beginning, I really would focus on vocabulary and then maybe go into reading and speaking and writing. Or grammar, I should say.
2: It depends very much on the language as well. So if you have languages, which let's say like Chinese or Indonesian and so on, where the word usually doesn't change the form, then you can learn it as a single word. But let's say when you learn Arabic, you have to realize that uh, Hamra and Ahmar is in fact the same word. It's red, but depending whether it's masculine and feminine. And in, let's say, Suwahili, when you ask what is small, well, it depends. It can be mdogo, dogo, kidogo, wadogo, and so on. It depends to what noun it refers to. So I see in languages which are morphologically more complex, I would then advocate learning words always together so, for instance, you learn then that it will be, let's say, dogo, so small, uh, you know, child, whatever. So you you try to learn combinations rather than individual words.
0: If I can just follow on that, I think that's an excellent point you've made, Thomas. I find that with Hungarian, where one word can just change completely, it's a lot easier for me um, to memorize vocabulary in chunking, so very short little sentences, short phrases. I don't think I've ever really memorized vocabulary lists in Hungarian because of this exact reason, but my vocabulary notebook is actually a list of very short phrases. And um, the only thing that I think traditional language education at schools gets right is giving you a vocabulary list in a theme, thematic vocabulary lists because then you can make connections between words um, according to a certain theme. It's not completely random, but the fact that they are just single vocabulary words, it's not really going to get you very far if you don't know how to use them, which is um, great what you said, Tali, is making it fun. Like if you can point things out in the house, you can visualize that space and you can start drawing connections between these vocabulary words. So I think we all can actually agree on the importance of um, not learning vocabulary words in isolation Whether you are visualizing it in front of you somewhere or you are connecting it to other words in a sentence, that's definitely going to make you learn a lot faster.
1: I've always been a great believer in learning in context, and I think one of the best contexts to learn in is actually when you make a hugely embarrassing mistake in front of a crowd of people that you don't know. Uh, When you accidentally get a word mixed up and say something you don't mean to, I think you're definitely in a place where you're never going to forget that word again. Um, And Talia reminded me that one of the things I used to do uh, before the invention of the smartphone, where my now eyes are always down at my screen, is I sometimes used to just look out the window or look around my room and set myself the challenge of trying to name as many things as I could in that room in the language that I was learning. And then I would get the reinforcement of, of knowing quite a lot of words sometimes in the language I was learning, but also realize the words I didn't know and the words that I had to know in order to start to feel perhaps like I was getting a little bit more fluent. Is that something that you know you, you have any um, experience with doing with your students that you'd recommend?
3: Um yeah I think that's that's a good um we do it a little different but that's definitely a good way you could literally sit in a room and look around and name objects that you see. And I, I like to to ask people find somebody in a native language and practice with them. You know even if like you said at the beginning it's hard to you know to to speak at the beginning, you, you feel intimidated, but the more you do it, the better you become. And um, I think you can do that even with yourself. If you can't find anybody else, you go sit in front of a mirror, you know? And it's a little awkward, it's a little weird, but you know, have fun with it, why not? You know, you just, just do it and practice and as much as you can. I think one of the most important things that I tell my learners is, you know, practice as much as you can. Um, it could be sticky notes, it could be sitting in front of a mirror, maybe watch a movie that you really like. Have you seen it in English? Great, now watch it in German or put subtitles in German or put subtitles in English, you know, just switch it around. But um, another thing that I learned too is repetition is always, and I think I know this because I'm a mom, but repetition really helps, you know, with anything. And the same with language learning. The more you repeat, if you made a mistake, you know, laugh at yourself, but just go out there and practice.
1: Thomas, I'm going to ask you the million-dollar question, uh, which is that I think when a lot of us start learning a language, one of the things that we would like to achieve in that language is the feeling of being able to speak it fluently. What does being able to speak a foreign language fluently really mean? And how do we know if we've got that?
2: I think if the for me, the goal is, for instance, to be able to really express yourself in a rich and interesting way, in a way I would say For me, a success in a new language is if I can manage to express in this language something which I couldn't be able to express in all the other languages I already speak, because that means that it really adds a new dimension to my life. And that is, for me, more important than, so to say, in box speaking exercises. And just to kind of finish, you know, with this, the question about native speaker, an anecdote which I like particularly because it's about a man who went to the same school as me, namely a certain Joseph Konrad or Joseph Konrad Korzeniewski in Polish. For him, English was the fifth or sixth language, basically, that he spoke. And he became a rather good writer, I would say, I mean, to make it in your... FIFTH LANGUAGE INTO THE TEXTBOOKS OF LITERATURE IS NOT BAD, AND ONE OF THE PEOPLE WHO WAS GREAT, YOU KNOW, FANS AND, and admirers OF HIM WAS uh, BERTRAND RUSSELL, THE PHILOSOPHER, AND HE WRITES HIS MEMOIRS WHEN HE FIRST VISITED TO HE COULDN'T BELIEVE WITH WHAT A THICK POLISH ACCENT HE WAS SPEAKING. So there was sometimes difficult to understand. He says, I cannot imagine that the man who writes an English prose that I love so much and admire speaks with such a strong Polish accent. So that is a story which I always remind myself of when people, so to say, feel or criticize my, my Polish accent in English.
1: Lindy, have you ever felt fluent in a language that wasn't your native language? And, and what does it feel like?
0: I think it's a very fleeting feeling and i was actually reading something on twitter this morning that i could really relate to a friend of mine was saying um you know today in my online lesson i felt that i i just couldn't speak i had so much trouble and then my previous lesson i the sentences were just flowing and she's been learning korean for seven years and i can completely relate it's really a fleeting thing sometimes you feel hey everything's just coming out it's awesome and another time you're like oh man it's just not working so i think you you get these moments that you feel wow you know i've like thomas said i've been able to express something and i feel fluent and it might not feel the same way the next time but if i can think of one concrete example where i've really felt fluent is um i was talking on the phone there's this app in korea where you can call people um anonymously and you can just like make friends and chat and it doesn't show a video so you, you you're you just on a, uh, a phone call and i was speaking in korean and. A close Korean friend of mine at the time had a very specific dialect accent. And I had been spending so much time with that friend that I picked up that dialect accent in my voice. And this Korean person, after I revealed that, hey, I'm actually South African, they said, no, you're lying. I don't believe you. You sound like you're from Busan. You have a a dialect accent. Uh, You're lying. You're trolling. You're definitely not South African. And um, as frustrating as that was because I wanted to continue the conversation and they're like, stop trolling me. I'm going to hang up. A part of me felt, wow, this is kind of what it feels like to be fluent if they cannot tell the difference between a native speaker with a dialect um versus a a foreign foreign accent so i'm not saying that having a good accent is the key to fluency and on a similar note neither is having a good grade in a language exam i know of people who have the highest grade in a language exam and they can barely speak and i know of people who are so comfortable and fluent or fluid in their speaking, but their vocabulary is lacking. So it's very, very hard to define actually what fluency is because it could be a feeling, it could be a certification. It, it's uh, it's too, too broad to really define.
1: Ali, you sound extremely fluent to me in English when you speak and um, I wonder whether you ever had a moment where it suddenly clicked where you suddenly realized you were fluent in your second language?
3: Yeah, I was actually really, really shy, and I I spoke English for a while, but I never wanted to go out and and speak in English, you know, I was like, Lindy, I didn't want to go in the store and say hello, because it just scared me so much, and then I started watching my favorite TV show, and I've seen it already in German, I, you know, switched it into English, and I watched it, I, I want to say twice, And after I watched it twice, I just went out there and I I spoke. I figured, you know what? I I think I can do this now, you know? Like I I watched this twice, I think I'm good. And that's really when I started speaking English and it just worked, you know? At the minute I let myself go out and, and I allow myself to go out and make mistakes and talk to people, it just got better and better.
1: So I hope you enjoyed that episode and once again a big thanks to Thomas, Tally, and Lindy for making the time to join us and sharing their thoughts, tips and advice on the best way to learn a new language. As we just heard, the first thing you need to do is find a key motivation and reason to learn your new language. Then, find some fun ways to learn new, relevant vocabulary as a starting point. It's equally important that you stay disciplined, set goals and find a way to track your progress. And finally, make sure you enjoy it. Don't just focus on the final destination, but remember to keep speaking and practicing as much as you can, even if you make a few mistakes along the way. Also, just a little reminder to go to RosettaStone.co.uk forward slash podcast for those special offers on all Rosetta Stone courses, including their lifetime subscription. The link is in the episode description, so simply click there to start your language learning journey today. In our next episode, we discuss the first thing to focus on when learning a new language, which is vocabulary. We'll hear from special guest Susie Dent on her love for lexicon and why it's so important for communication. And we'll also have a special guest tuning in from Los Angeles, U.S. Memory Champion Chester Santos, who'll be talking about some of his techniques and how you can apply them to your language learning. Lastly, in our final episode on the 20th of May, myself and special guest Susie Dent will be answering your questions on language learning. So if there's something you'd like to know, just tweet at Rosetta Stone UK for a chance to be selected. See you next time.